Today on CityCast Chicago, the city has finally selected a developer to transform a 21-acre vacant lot at Roosevelt Road and Costner Avenue in the North Lawndale neighborhood, or what many people call K-Town. Now, that parcel of land has a long and dirty history. I'm talking mafia ties, FBI investigations, wiretaps, political corruption, and at the heart of it, a neglected community. We dig into the Operation Silver Shovel scandal. It's Wednesday, February 8th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. Operation Silver Shovel first became public in 1996. It was a federal anti-corruption probe into dozens of city officials connected to the West Side dumping site. Now, more than 25 years later, the city has tapped developers to build a $38 million project for freight operations, a job training center, and even public park space. It's a promising future for an area with a very shady past. Robin Amer investigated that past in the USA Today podcast called The City. She's now a senior audio producer at The Washington Post. This illegal dumping site was at Roosevelt and Costner in North Lawndale. Uh, can you kind of place us there? What's around this block and neighborhood? To the north of the lot is Sumner Elementary School, which is, you know, Chicago Public School. On the east side of the lot, there's a Baptist church. And all around the lot, there are houses and apartment buildings and some factories, too. You know, North Lawndale had been a center of manufacturing in Chicago for a very long time. And so that lot had once been home to factories, but those factories had been demolished by the time the illegal dumping started. And traditionally, who lives in that neighborhood? You mentioned the Baptist Church, the elementary school. Who are the people attending uh, those institutions? You know, North Lawndale, at least since about the 1950s, has been almost entirely a black neighborhood. And of course, that's largely due to Chicago's long history of segregation. Um, It had been a white and Jewish neighborhood, prior to that, but around the 50s, it started transitioning. But, you know, picture like a working class neighborhood, a neighborhood with a lot of families with young children. And although there had been a lot of disinvestment and even abandonment as, you know, these big manufacturers left North Lawndale, it was also a neighborhood that was really beloved by the people who lived there. There was a real sense of neighborhood pride. There was a high degree of homeownership. There were block clubs and other neighborhood civic groups. How did this this massive lot become a dumping ground. So the dumping began in the spring of 1990, as far as we can tell. But when it first began, you know, neighborhood residents saw this white man named John Christopher uh, set up shop there with what he presented as his rock crushing operation. So he would invite construction companies from around the city that were doing road repair, demolition, and had, you know, debris that they needed to dump somewhere. And then he would be charging these companies a fee to dump there. And then he said that he was going to be using this giant machine called a rock crusher to pulverize the concrete and asphalt and other building materials and then recycle it, essentially, and resell that material. Um, The trouble was that that wasn't actually what he was doing. And over time, the piles of Concrete, asphalt, rebar, bricks, and other building materials just started piling up. Whereas, you know, other legal facilities that would accept this kind of construction debris might charge $150 a truckload 
John Christopher was charging as little as $10 a load sometimes. And John Christopher was making a lot of money. How big does this pile ultimately get between 1990 and and when people start really uh, looking into it? The first kind of mile marker we have is in about 1992 when the city actually tried to take John Christopher to court. The city calculated that there were more than 31,000 dump truck loads of debris I just picture truck after truck after yeah. truck after truck after truck. By the time the feds got involved, this dump was six stories tall. It was the size of an apartment building. And this is in a neighborhood where, you know, the average two flat or three flat is two or three stories tall. So it was literally twice as tall as anything else that was around it. 31,000 in two years. I, I just did the math. That's potentially 42 dump trucks coming through that neighborhood a day for two years. And that builds up to about six stories of debris. You know, what are the consequences of this for the people in the neighborhood? As one example, there was a family that I talked to, the Ashford family, the mother, Rita, and her daughters, Michelle and Sharina. And they lived about a block south of this lot. And Michelle, the daughter who was a teenager at the time, said, When the dust would fly, if you had lip gloss on it, your lip gloss would be full of dirt. I mean, you could taste it on your lips and your mouth. The wind would blow dust from the debris that was piling up in this lot into their windows and into their homes. You know, dust would cover every surface. The EPA does classify it as what's called particulate matter, which is very, very fine matter that can be inhaled into the lungs. And that can be quite dangerous, for example, if you're very young or you're very old or you already suffer from breathing problems or certain kinds of health conditions. And, you know, Ms. Ashford, actually, she and so many other people we talked to, especially people who had young children, talked about the asthma. I told uh, Sharina, I said, it's something, something that's not right with that. And you could tell, too, because when you hold her up and listen to her back, you could hear the wheezing. And so she she was panting like that. You could actually hear it. Something like that, almost like a whistle. You know, it's it's difficult in this kind of reporting to say conclusively, like, yes, the dust from this lot caused this child to have asthma. but But the anecdotes you know, to us was very persuasive that there was likely some connection there, right? Like, you don't you don't have to be a scientist to kind of figure out that living next to an illegal dump, breathing in that dust day in and day out. I just ask any official, like, well, would you want to do that? Would you want your kids to mm-hmm. do that? And, of course, the answer is no. Can you give me more to skinny on this John Christopher? Because this, this guy seems to be at the center of it, and, and, and the story isn't just him running an illegal dumping site. John Christopher wasn't just like, a guy running a construction company that he actually had longstanding and and family ties to Chicago organized crime. So his great uncle Fifi was long rumored to be a mob hitman. And although he was never indicted on murder charges, he was once heard bragging on a federal wire about torturing and then killing Uh, somebody that he suspected of turning on organized crime, turning on the mob. And John Christopher himself had a criminal history prior to this illegal dumping. And and the most kind of shocking example is that in the late 70s and early 80s, he had actually spent time in federal prison 
after, uh, bear with me for a second, defrauding the federal government on snow removal contracts following the blizzard of 1979. So, and then when he was facing trial, the feds got wind that he might be um, interested in assassinating a federal witness who was going to testify against him, and they sent him to prison for that too. And and the feds actually at one point referred to him as the quote-unquote Forrest Gump of Chicago crime. Hey, a scammer gonna scam. And when he showed up in North Lawndale, you know, Gladys Woodson and her neighbors, they were not shy about confronting him. We walked over there to talk to John Christopher, and we asked him, you know, could he uh, stop grinding or whatever he was doing over there? He told us he could do whatever he pleased. And we told him, well, okay, we'll go to court. And he said, if you do go to court, uh, when I leave, I'm going to leave everything just like it is now. And that is pretty much what happened. We'll be right back. You know, you've made clear the neighborhood has kind of sounded the alarm. So what was Operation Silver Shovel and how was it connected to the dumping site? Neighbors had been trying for years to get somebody, anybody, at some level of government to pay attention to this illegal dumping and do something about it. The city kind of abdicated its responsibilities here, right? Like, they just didn't do much until the feds got involved. So they got involved because of their interest in John Christopher. So in about 1991, there was a bank called Cosmopolitan National Bank that went bankrupt and went belly up. And that's rather unusual for that to happen. And so the FBI started investigating, and I spoke to a man named Tony D'Angelo, and he told me that when he started looking at the bank ledgers, there was one name that really jumped out at him as having just a really staggering amount of, of loans that had gone unpaid. Would you like to guess who the man was? John Christopher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tony D'Angelo was able to cultivate John Christopher as a source, as a as a witness in this in this bank case. And um, it emerged in these conversations that John Christopher was afraid of going back to prison. And so after months of conversations with this FBI agent, he finally says to him, are you interested in politicians? And Tony D'Angelo's ears perk up and he says, of course I'm interested in politicians. Like, what do you have on politicians? And John Christopher proceeds to tell him that, you know, not only has he been doing this illegal dumping, but he's been able to do it because he says he has been bribing elected officials all over town. After all the work that neighborhood residents in K-Town and next to this dump had done to get somebody to care, the people who come in, the feds, weren't even interested in the dumping site. They were interested in this bank. And John Christopher, to, to keep his hustle going, to, to save his own skin, basically tells on himself. Yes. And, and, and brings the, the dumping sites into this conversation. Yeah. And the way that the FBI would put it and the way they put it to me is that they were interested in official corruption, right? They were interested in elected officials misusing their public office and betraying the public trust to enrich themselves rather than protect their constituents. At that point, the feds were not interested in the dump itself. And they were very clear to me later that they did not believe it was their responsibility to clean up the dump or to otherwise deal with that environmental problem, right? They said there's other agencies that do that. The EPA does that. So John Christopher wore a wire. And over the next three and a half years, he recorded himself— attempting to bribe 
uh, more than 40 different elected officials around the city. So these were aldermen. These were state legislators. These were city inspectors from the Department of Environment. These were commissioners from the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District. Basically anybody that he had a relationship with or could get an introduction to, he attempted to bribe. So while it seems to be true that they did not allow John Christopher to set up any new operations anywhere, the fact that he was still walking around a free man meant that the illegal dumping was able to continue in North Lawndale, whereas if he had gone to prison, you know, as early as 1991 on bank fraud charges, it's possible that that would have stopped much sooner. So what was ultimately the outcome of this investigation? How many people were indicted and then uh, convicted? If you talk to the FBI and, and officials from the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office today, they still refer to this as one of their most successful ever corruption probes. They investigated more than 40 people as part of Operation Silver Shovel and ultimately indicted about a dozen. And as I mentioned one convictions against most of them, although one was acquitted and one official died before he could be tried. But when we talked to people in the neighborhood, they had a deep sense of betrayal. They were absolutely shocked to hear that this man, John Christopher, who they had just thought of as a shady businessman, that he had been working for the FBI. And in some ways, and in their minds, that meant that he had been protected by the FBI. And suddenly everything made sense to them, right? Like why they could never get anybody to take their situation seriously or to pay attention to them. I mean, let alone clean up the dump, which was absolutely still there. We're more invested in getting headlines and sort of heads on a pike than that actually serving the people who were being harmed the most, the people who were on the, the opposite end of these bribes and rock-crushing operations. Yeah, and again, the federal, the feds would say, you know, we were targeting public corruption. That is harmful, too. And I think that in some ways that's a fair argument, but they did not see the dump as their problem, and that had always been the resident's number one complaint. John Christopher did eventually go back to prison, but he didn't go to prison for the illegal dumping either. He continued to commit other crimes even while he was cooperating, working for the FBI, among them bankruptcy fraud and tax evasion. And he was never forced to clean up the lot and he was never forced to pay any kind of, you know, compensation to the people that he'd hurt. Did the illegal dumping stop in K-Town after this investigation went public and, and the indictments and arrests started rolling out? The publicity from Operation Silver Shovel and, frankly, the embarrassment for the city of Chicago was actually finally the spark that was needed to get the dumps cleaned up. You know, within a few weeks of this news breaking, you have press conferences, televised press conferences with people like Mayor Daley and U.S. Senator Dick Durbin, like standing at a lectern in front of the dumps, being like, we're going to clean this up immediately. So by 1998, like 99% of the construction debris was removed. But people like Gladys Woodson and Rita Astor were just like, where were you? Three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, six years ago, when we were, you know, they had sent letters to members of Congress. They had sent letters to the mayor. It wasn't as if they didn't know this was happening. It was only because of the embarrassment and the scrutiny as a result of Silver Shovel that finally made them jump into action. 
the lot at Roosevelt and Costner is still vacant and the, the city have been trying to get new developers for the property for a long time. And now they've announced that they've done just that. Why do you think it's taken so long for us to get to this point? It's now 2022 and they're, they're announcing development plans. Yeah. So I hate to be um, so skeptical, but I will say that um, I just personally take any new announcement of any new development at this site with a massive grain of salt. One thing I learned in my reporting 20 years after John Christopher's dump had been cleaned up, that at that point there had been at least four major efforts to redevelop the lot, and none of those efforts had come to fruition. There had been plans to build a movie studio. There had been plans to build warehouses. And it had also been one of the lots that had been considered for the Obama presidential library. I think for me, the question is not just why has it taken so long, but why have none of the plans that have been put forward so far actually come to fruition? And if this were a different neighborhood in Chicago, if this were a neighborhood on the north side, if this were a white neighborhood, if this were a neighborhood that the private market was more interested in, then you would not have a parcel of this size likely that would be empty for 20 years, right? And I think to me that's just like part of the sad story that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, you know, of a legacy of segregation and disinvestment and redlining and other really big structural forces that continue to shape the way that Chicago grows and changes as a city. Robin Amer is the creator, host, and executive producer of the fire-ass podcast, The City. She's also a senior audio producer at The Washington Post. Robin, thank you for making time for us here at CityCast Chicago. Thank you so much. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. The Chicago Teachers Union and CPS are scheduled to meet in federal court today regarding a $9.25 million civil rights settlement. Check today's newsletter to learn more about the decades-long legal challenge. You can subscribe at chicago.citycast.fm slash newsletter. Chicago has lost three blues legends in the last two weeks. Rest in peace to Hall of Famer Seal Johnson, Jimmy Johnson, and Sam Lay. And some good news to get you through. In honor of Black History Month, Women of Soul is playing all month at the Mercury Theater. This musical is a celebration of some of the greatest black voices of all time, like Gladys Knight, Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson, and of course, a tribute to the Queen Aretha Franklin. Remember, we're collecting your Chicago love stories for the next week. You can send us a text or voicemail at 773-780-0246. Leave your name, your neighborhood, and of course, your love story. I'm out for the rest of the week, but our producers are here to hold you down. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Karlov, Kedvale, Kilkook, Keystone, Keeler, Kildare, Costner, Kenneth, Kilborn, Kenton, Knox, Comer, Kilpatrick, and Keating Avenues. All on the west side. It's a lot of K's. Need like a little song for that. <laughs>